Welcome back to Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends, a podcast series brought to you by the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center and funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA. We are pleased to join our colleagues at the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research in presenting this series. The views, opinions, and content of this podcast are those of the host and speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of SAMHSA. Welcome to this episode of Saving Young Black Lives. I'm your host, Michael Lindsay, Executive Director of the NYU McSilver Institute. We're glad to have you with us, but please be advised that this podcast series includes descriptions of suicide, suicidal behavior, self-harm behavior, violence, bullying, and other traumatic experiences. We're doing this podcast because we are at a ring de alarm moment in our nation with regard to the mental health of Black children and teens. Our research at McSilver has shown that prior to the pandemic, suicide attempts among Black high school students had been rising over the past generation, even as they were steady or falling in other groups. Meanwhile, Black children ages 5 to 12 are completing suicide at higher rates than their peers. Now, what could possibly push a child to end their life when it has barely begun? Today's guest knows what it's like to be a child who feels pushed to the edge. Mike Vini is a mental health speaker, author, and certified corporate wellness specialist. Mike was determined to overcome a lifetime of serious mental health challenges to become a professional drummer and the author of Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero. The mission of his company, Mike Vini Inc., is to support people in their emotional wellness through through unique learning experiences designed to empower their personal and professional growth. Welcome to the show, Mike Vini. Hello, Michael, and thank you for having me and hello to your listeners and viewers. Thank you so much. So Mike, you had experiences as a child that allow you to relate to the trends we are seeing now in black youth suicide rates. Please tell us about them. I, I've been struggling with mental health challenges for my entire life. And it started as behavior problems for me. Um, I was behaving badly. I was constantly in trouble, constantly getting yelled at. And I thought I was a bad kid. I was constantly in trouble. I just was angry. I would snap. I would, I would scream, yell, punch my little brother. I didn't know why I was angry. You know, they would ask me why. And I didn't know. And this is a a nice opportunity to say to anyone listening or watching, sometimes when you ask a young person why they're behaving a certain way or why they're doing something, and they say, I don't know, they're telling the truth. Because mental health challenges are so confusing, complex, and frustrating, especially when you're a kid. You know, I didn't have the ability to communicate like I do now. And it led to me getting expelled from three schools, hospitalized in a mental hospital three times, several suicide attempts, lots of self-harm, and violent at home and and um all the while my younger brother jason was doing just fine jason had friends everyone liked jason he got good grades and i came from a good home a really good home with good parents so that's where my journey began i just um 
I, re I really, really struggled with my behavior, acting out. And I would later learn that what I was going through was called depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder, but I didn't know that at the time. Wow, thank you for being so forthright and sharing um, your journey and the struggles. I'm, I'm really curious about, you mentioned suicide as a child. Yeah. Can you talk to us about how old you were, what you were going through, and what made you think that suicide was uh, a choice um, or a decision to make at that moment? Well, I'm going to put it in perspective now and then go back. Because when people ask me about my own mental health now, um, I the only way I can describe it is by describing... Um, a kitchen in an oven. And I, and I always say, picture a, a kitchen with not just any old oven, but an industrial strength Viking restaurant oven. Like the thing has four burners on it. And typically on the top right burner, simmering in a frying pan is my obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm constantly thinking about stuff. As I'm recording here with you, I'm obsessing over certain things. On the lower right burner is my anxiety. So I got that going on at the same time. And on the top left burner is my depression intense sadness and I feel physical pain in my body from the depression that I experienced. But you take all those ingredients from each frying pan and put it into a stock pot. You close the lid and turn up the heat. That's what's going on inside my head right now. That's what was going on inside of my head as a kid. And that is just overwhelming to think about for anyone. And so when I was 10 years old, um, I was starting to experience this sadness that I would later learn as depression. And it was constant it was just all the time and I didn't understand why and you know when you're a kid sometimes the way you learn is through other kids you hear things on the playground on the streets and so I just wanted a solution and that's something I really want to bring up and emphasize that a lot of times when someone's struggling they simply want a solution I mean if you're listening to this or watching this you want a solution and when I was um, 10 years old I, I just I couldn't take the pain anymore, Michael. I, I just, I came home from school one day and and I went into the medicine cabinet and, and decided to just take a bottle of pills and end my life because I needed the pain to go away. My mom came home from work and found me lying there and she rushed me to the hospital to save my life. And um, I'm grateful that she did. Looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that she did that. But I want to be very honest with you. At the time, I was angry at her because she was getting in the way of me solving the problem of the pain that I was going through. And that was something that I had to resolve over time because I just wanted the pain to go away. And that's why I attempted to die by suicide. And I think a lot of youth, um, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but we get to a point where there's pain so bad, you just can't take it. And that's the reality. It doesn't matter what things look like on the outside. You know, someone could be smiling, looking like they have it all together. It doesn't matter. Thank you um, again, Mike, for just your forthrightness here. And um, I, I know that it is bringing healing to someone who is feeling a lot of things that you have felt, but perhaps have not been um, able to 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 talk about them. And um, what a, what a journey, a powerful journey you've had. 
Um, but I'm curious about, again, going back to that time, how did the grown-ups around you react to what you were going through and what do you wish they had known? It's a great question. Um, a great, great question. The grownups around me, my, my parents, my mom and my dad, were concerned and did the best they could to address it by trying to find different mental health resources that were available. At the same time, and this is important here, they didn't want anyone to know about mm -hmm my mental health challenges. So it wasn't a public thing that other neighbors knew about or other families. It's like, we kept that quiet, you know? And they even told me very, very nicely. It's like, we got, we got to get you help and no one can ever know about this because it's not going to be good for you in the future. You know, if, if, if you don't fix this. And um, so that's, that's how they responded. I, I knew that it was something that needed to be kept quiet I needed to get fixed. I wanted it to go away. I just wanted my, my, my challenges to go away. And so the different help they got me was um, different psychologists and psychiatrists. And that ended up with me on different medications and stuff. I don't know really what worked and what didn't, because I think when it comes to mental health treatment, and this is very important for people listening, we live in a world where we want things done quickly, you know, my, my car was having issues the other day, you know, and I, I took it to the mechanic. And if the mechanic said to me, Mike, you need to bring this car back every week for the next six months, because it's had a deep history. I'd be like, no, like, no, I, get, get me a new mechanic. But we approach things like that in life, we just want a solution to fix the problem. Mental health doesn't work that way. And I didn't realize that at the time, it was a journey that I had to go through that I'm still going through. And now I'm very grateful that I'm going through. But at the time, you know, my parents just wanted their child to be okay. They were worried about my future. And so that was how they, they supported me as best they could at the time. Wow. I mean, I think it's also important to normalize the experience of a mental health struggle in the sense that we all are going through some kind of mental health struggle, you know? Um, and there are times where it is more debilitating than others, but, you know, the fact of the matter is we all are going through something. And, um, and, I, and I'm curious about your reaction to that because you know, it's easy to point a finger and say this person is, you know, yada, yada, yada. But the reality is that um, it's all of us and we are all, you know, struggling with something uh, related to our mental health. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. And, and I have uh, a few different thoughts on that. First of all, I think this is the whole stigma conversation. And just to be clear, stigma is defined as a mark of shame that we carry. And when it comes to mental health, stigma is about three things, stereotypes um, that, that we have, prejudice when we feel uncomfortable with someone and discrimination. We don't want to be around certain people because of whatever. And I actually believe that it starts in two places. And this is very important because it also is separate, I believe, for people of color. But for everyone, 
there's what I call the law of inclusion and exclusion. Uh, you see it on the playground with children all the time, kindergartners in particular. The way they figure out who is in the group and who is not in the group is by calling someone the weird one. We think it's cute. You know, they go, you're weird, you're weird. They're, they're figuring out who is in the group and who is not in the group. And they bring that with them through the rest of childhood, young adulthood, adulthood into the world. And guess what? None of us wants to be the weird one. The second is what I call the law of confusion and frustration. I um, Years ago, I was working out in the gym. I was doing one of those push-up routines where you put your hands in different positions. I was trying to impress this woman in the gym. I'm not going to lie. And, and, and I, I was doing that. And I ended up hurting my wrist. Totally played it off and left the gym. I knew when I got home, it was a sprain, a strain, or a broken wrist. Give it two days, call a doctor if it's not better. Mental health doesn't work that way. Most people don't go wake up and go, oh, I'm, I'm depressed. Maybe I should talk to someone. And the reality is someone typically discovers for you in your behavior and has to confront you about it when it comes to mental health. So those are the reasons that I believe, or, or two of the clues, I should say, not the total reason that stigma exists. But then you have people of color. And in, 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 when it comes to people of color, there's so many other factors that come into play. One is that we are a culture of honor. So Michael, you and I are people of color, men of color, and if we were walking down the street together, which I could totally see us in New York City having a nice talk, someone who is Caucasian passed us and, and, and said a racial slur, you and I, I can guarantee you, we're not going to go try to fight the person. I, I, I think you and I are, you know, we'll keep our cool, but we're going to feel disrespected at some level. Yes, for culture of honor. So think about this when it comes to people of color, we sometimes don't want to admit weakness or what we perceive to be weakness or something we're struggling with because we feel like we're disrespecting ourselves. Mm. So that's compounded with that other stuff. The other challenge, particularly with, with men in the black community, I actually looked it up years ago. I wrote this article called Depression versus the Strong Black Man. And I, I went to Google to look up the definition of a strong black man because nobody ever told me what the definition was. And I discovered on Google, there was no definition. I couldn't find one. But I swear, Michael, I've heard this term for years, strong black man, I couldn't find a definition. So I realized that it's this archetype we have in our head, but no one has a clear definition of. And when it comes to men and young boys in particular, you know, we want to be strong, whatever that means. So you factor in the law of inclusion, ex exclusion, the law of confusion and frustration. We're a culture of honor and we're still trying to define and aspire to be strong black men and women. You've got a problem when it comes to mental health. You've wow. got a real problem. And I'm not even covering all of it right there, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, again, thank you for such rich comments um it makes me think that i want to go back to childhood for 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 a minute yeah and um how did teachers perceive you what were your interaction with adults in the schools related to your mental health uh challenges at that time you know in first grade I would get yelled at a lot by the teacher. In second grade, my parents put me in Catholic school because they wanted the nuns to straighten me out. Mm 
Second grade and third grade weren't good, but in fourth grade, I had the experience that I, I think you'll remember. There was always that one teacher in school nobody wanted as a teacher, and they were known as mean, evil, or an alien, or whatever. They had a reputation. So this, this teacher was known as uh, um, the mean, evil nun, Sister Pat, and I knew from day one she and I were not going to finish the school year together. I just knew that was going to happen. And, and one day I was sitting in class and I wasn't misbehaving. You know, I was just smiling. And I guess that was a problem for her. Um, could have been because I was one of the few people of color in the class. I don't know. I was sitting there smiling and she told me to wipe the smile off my face. And, and I said, no, I think you're not supposed to say to your teacher. And uh, she uh, yelled at me. And I'm getting angry as I'm talking about this, thinking about it. And I said some things back to her that I'm not going to repeat right now. And she tried to uh, pull me out of my desk and grab me by my arm. And I punched my teacher as hard as I could. She took holy water and threw it on me and called me the devil. And I threw it back at her and said, put this on your wrinkles. I was expelled from school that day. And that was my interaction with teachers. I had trouble with authority. I, I, you know, some people have trouble with authority. They don't want to listen. If someone like dared try to, come towards me with authority, I would fight them. You know, I really had a lot of trouble with that. So they thought I was a problem. They thought I was bad. Um, I needed strict uh, uh, instruction. I was put in special education for a while. And, and so that was my interaction with teachers, but I did have a select few, which is important here, that I felt truly cared about me. And I'll never forget those teachers. I think about them all the time. They really have a nice place in my heart. How did they show they cared about you, Mike? This is something that I always have trouble articulating because how can you show that you care about someone? The thing I remind um, parents and teachers as adults, you know, Michael, you and I can walk into a room with a group of people and you know from 100 feet away who doesn't like you. Like we can pick that up. Kids are even more in tune than us to who doesn't like them. So if you are a teacher and you go into a classroom, even with all the tactics in the world, but you just really don't like a kid, they're going to pick that up. But you know what? If you really care about someone, the kid's going to pick it up. So the, the, the way I knew is I could just feel it in their heart. And that's so hard to really quantify, but it's something I think people all know at some level, you can feel it in your heart when someone cares about you. And that really made a huge difference for me. We'll be back in a moment with more of Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends. In this season of Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends, we're hearing from survivors, parents, and experts about what it will take to stop a growing crisis. But no, I've been struggling with mental health challenges for my entire life. And it started as behavior problems for me. I was behaving badly. I was constantly in trouble, constantly getting yelled at. And I thought I was a bad kid. Walking to my car with my son on my shoulder. Buddy, we still got time. This is not what you had to do. I knew that my son was with God. I like to say that the body is a truth teller, right? So it will tell you that something is wrong, something is not well, something is not right. So those strategies, again, when we're talking about um, the talk, that's something that we do. And the cost of not having the talk is people being able to wage whatever they want to say or do to your child and your child having no buffer, no pillow, no exposure to that being a systemic problem. So now they think it's me 
I'm the only one that's being impacted like this. There's something wrong with me and what I've done. Better mental health for our Black youth starts with us. The Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, in partnership with the NYU McSilver Institute, is talking about Black youth suicide trends with people who know. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Lindsay. Join us. We're back with more of Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends. Uh, please tell us about the work you're doing now related to mental health and how do your childhood experiences shape that work? You know, for most of my life, I was ashamed about my childhood. <laughs> like I didn't want to tell anybody about it. Never would have thought I'd be talking to you here today about this, you know? <laughs> like, ho hopefully we'd be talking about other stuff. And um, the thing that really turned my life around, let me just say, was drumming. Um, and I became a drummer. And that was the one thing that grounded me and made me feel good about myself. You know, the reason I think the arts can be so helpful is because we all have conversations going on inside our head. You have one going on right now. I do too. And sometimes when we're not in touch with that conversation or it's a very disturbing conversation, it leads to what we perceive to be mental health challenges. The arts allow us to get in touch with that conversation and express it in a healthy way. And so drumming really turned my life around. And I, I thought the challenges were over starting at age 18. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Got my, got my career. I'm good. But um, I didn't realize it, but they were still there and I just kept wanting to suppress them and they would peek out here and there and certain little explosions and breakdowns. And finally in 2011, I had a breakdown that was devastating. I was, I was walking around the streets of New York and I always like to say I was that person on the streets. I was talking to myself. I was psychotic. I was in a bad place. And um, I reached out to this woman that I knew because I didn't want to die by suicide. I was just, I was in a bad spot, Mike. And um, I said, Cheryl, this is Mike Vini. I, I need help. And I didn't like her response to me. She was like, Mike Vini, what's up? How are you? And I'm like, no, I, I need help. And she's like, so good to hear your voice. When we hanging out? And I'm like, oh my God, this is why people die by suicide. But little did I learn it was going to be the best call that I could have ever made because she asked me at the end of the call, she said, can I hire you to be a mental health speaker at my conference for children? And I said, no. <laughs> I don't want to speak to those people. <laughs> and the next day she did what I call adult bullying. And that's when you email somebody and CC a bunch of other people they know. And she asked me to be a speaker. And I started speaking about my, my journey. And I got up on stage to speak about my story, what I shared with you. First of all, I ended up crying. And it was like the first time as an adult, I cried. And I got a standing ovation. And so many people, I mean, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Sorry. So people just came up and were thanking me for this. You know, and I'm like, what the heck? It, it, it was confusing because for most of my life, I was trying to get rid of this. So I had a serious talk with myself about life. And I knew that, you know, I want to be a drummer. That was my dream. I told my parents, I want to play drums in a bar for drunk people. That was my dream. But I realized that maybe there was a different calling here, that maybe my mental health journey as a youth happened to me so I could help others. Within a year of that event, I was speaking nationally about mental health. And I ended up uh, um, writing a book called Transforming Stigma. And the book is um, basically 
what I did to keep myself alive between that time I spoke with Cheryl and that event, I went to the library to learn everything I could about stigma because I realized that when you come, when you address mental health, you have two things you're addressing, the challenge you're dealing with and the stigma surrounding it. And personally, I'm learning that the stigma is a lot worse than any challenge that you're going through. It's that what if you found out? What if you found out and didn't want to be my friend or you're my employer? You might, you know, not want to work with me anymore. And so um, basically I, I wrote down three points on an index card to keep myself focused on happiness. And that became my book. Wow. Wow. I was very fortunate to have encountered certain guides in my life and mentors that really helped me see some things differently. About to get all emotional again. I, um, when it comes to youth, especially in my own journey with mental health, there there were three things that um, I I really look back at as as the problem: anger, grief, and fear. And I, I always bring this up to people because it, it's important. And a lot of youth in black communities are experiencing those three emotions intensely. Yeah. Because there's so many things in the world, and and anger, grief, and fear are like um, three emotions we don't like to talk about. Nobody likes to talk about. In fact, I've heard them referred to as negative emotions. Right. But an example of how I've learned to turn things around is several years ago, I learned a secret about anger, grief, and fear that I wish somebody would have told me when I was a kid. And if 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 I would have heard this as a youth. I might not have attempted to die by suicide. I, I don't think I would have been in the mental hospital. And the secret is um, that anger, grief, and fear are three of the absolute best emotions you could ever have and you need them for success in life. They are essential, they are critical, and they are positive. And I learned that when you learn to address your own fear, acknowledge it, feel it, don't run away from it. Sit with it and talk about it. Fear becomes vision and courage. You need fear. Grief. And, you know, as I'm talking about grief, I know that, you know, there's people watching and listening who've experienced a lot of grief over the past year and a half. And just please know that my heart goes out to you. And there's nothing I can really say that can take away grief if you're feeling it right now. But grief over time, when you learn to sit with it, not run away from it, and, and talk about it, grief eventually becomes joy. And anger, my favorite one of all. When we think of anger, we think of hostility and violence. I mean, think of the whole stereotype of the angry black man. You know, we think of hostility and violence. And if you look on the news, there's hostility and violence everywhere. But anger, when you learn to process it in a healthy way and feel it and talk about it, anger becomes passion, decisiveness, and successful leadership. You need your anger. And I've learned... Michael, to use those three emotions to my advantage now. So they're not a liability anymore. I'm not running away from them. I'm chasing them now. Anger, where are you? You know, and it it's actually been a beautiful journey. Brother, I'm listening. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking notes. Woo! That was so powerful. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mike, I've often described the mental health trends that we are seeing in our youth as a ring the alarm moment. What developments are you seeing that ring the alarm for you? Youth overall during the pandemic have suffered the worst. They've suffered the worst. And 
you know, one of the reasons for that is because they say that for an order for a young person to be mentally healthy, they need a mentally healthy adult in their life. Well, over the past year and a half, the adults in their life haven't been too healthy mentally because none of us has been. So, so that's a, a very scary trend that I'm seeing. Another trend that I'm seeing that's a ring the alarm moment, and this is not necessarily on youth, but actually parents mm. and guardians. You know, there's an opportunity to help our youth, but it starts with being a good role model. And oftentimes parents ask me, they'll say, Mike, I have a kid that was just like you or is just like you. What do I do? And I, I, I respond to the parents. I say, well, you need to go to therapy. And they go, they go, no, 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 no. It's my kid. And I said, I know it's your kid, but you need to go to therapy. Because when you're a parent and you go to therapy, you, number one, you're going to learn some things about yourself. You're going to learn some things. And you're going to serve as a role model for your kid. And that's the one thing I really wish my parents would have done differently is gone to therapy for themselves. So I guarantee you they would have helped me. They would have helped me better process emotions rather than just yell at me and tell me I was bad, you know? And so that's what I think is really important and some trends that I see. You know, it's so powerful that you said that because um, it is so often the case that we point the finger at someone who is the problematic one and uh, and it basically uh, takes the onus uh, around the circumstances off the person who is pointing the finger to the person who is quote unquote problematic. Um, and one of the things that is so powerful about what you've laid out that I learned as a young therapist was that when there is a child in the family who is quote unquote identified as the um, the problematic one or the identified patient that in the family treatment context that person needs to be recast from being the problematic one to being the superhero, the person who is actually trying to call attention to issues at the family level that are actually going to bring greater attention and help to that family. And I, I wonder if that, that resonates with what you're, what you're laying out here for us. Yes, I 900% agree with you. Um, I, I, I want to share a little story about this that I think is important. I was uh, for many years working with youth who were a bunch of little Mike Venies, um, chair throwers, I like to say, my, my, my chair throwers, those are my people right there. Those are my people. And um, I would do drumming workshops with them. And this one summer, I was working with this group of youth. I had to work with them two hours a day on drumming, we had to put together a performance for the end of the week. They were out of control. And there was this one youth that was so me. I mean, he was just a problem. Michael, it triggered me. Like, I'm, I'm getting angry at him, like in my head. And I, and I said, you know, I don't have the skills of a teacher. I don't know what to do. So I, I just said, I'm going to take a step out of the room and breathe. <laughs> Tried to calm myself down. And I called the kid to come out. I said, can I talk to you outside? He said, what, am I in trouble? I said, no. I want to talk with you. And I want you to really listen closely to what happened. 
He said, what did I do? I said, you didn't do anything. I said, I need a favor. So what's the favor? I said, I'm feeling a little stressed. I need a break. I need to go get some water. Can you take over teaching the class for me? He said, what? I said, yeah, go do it. <laughs> he goes in the room. But I don't know what happened. I, I come back. I got my water. And, and I come in the room and, and like, he's struggling to get all the kids to listen to him. <laughs> so I said to him, I want to see you after class. I said, how'd you do with teaching? He said, nobody wanted to listen to me. I said, oh, that sucks. I said, I said, tomorrow you're going to have to leave for 20 minutes. He goes, what? I said, 20 minutes. The next day comes around and I want you to listen very closely to what happened. We start the class. This is the trouble kid. And he started whispering to me, when is my turn to teach? And I said, it's coming up. I gave him his 20 minutes. Michael, I walked out of the room. I'm taking a break. I don't care what happens. Yeah. But by the end of the week, this is really hard to discuss because it just brings up so much. We had this performance that they had to do. We get to the performance and he comes up to me and says, um, Mike, I don't think we need you to be up there with us. And I said, no, you don't. You got this. So did I have a poorly behaved child or did I have a leader in disguise? Mm -hmm. It's important to realize there's a great book and I don't know the author it's called, I think there's no such thing as a bad child. That, that, that when someone is acting out or acting out in a way that you think is inappropriate or, or negative, there's something else going on that's an opportunity for discovery. Most of the time, we just want the problem to go away. Well, he needs to learn to behave. No, he's trying to tell us something or she's trying to tell us something. We need to learn what that is and help nurture them. Wow. So well put. We've talked about these rising trends and you've outlined a few things that, um, that have, you know, been a ring the alarm moment for you. Uh, has there been anything that is surprising to you or unexpected as it pertains to these rising trends in terms of, you know, let's say kids engaging in more suicidal behaviors, for example? I, I think the thing that's disturbing me about, and this is just mental health in general, mm -hmm. and it's so simple, like it's so simple. People can't just get off the computer, get off the mobile device and start looking people in the eyes and just having conversations like humans. You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> like forget treatment, forget stigma, like, Mental health challenges are human challenges. They're about the emotions, thoughts. We need to connect with people and we're not doing that. I go in restaurants, Michael, and I see couples eating dinner and they're on their phones with each other. And they give the kid the mobile device to look at it. I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? Like I can, I can see the therapy bills down the road for everybody here. People ask me all the time, what do I say to someone who's struggling with mental health? Now, if I had the answer, I'd be very wealthy. Let me just say that. But I have a clue as to some things that work and don't work. And if parents, guardians, teachers are listening to this, I want you to listen very closely. The worst thing you can do when someone is struggling is to give them advice. Yes. Because as one of my mentors said to me, he's got this sign in his studio that says no advice zone. And I asked him, I was like, what's up with that? No advice zone. He said, you're not allowed to give advice here. I was like, why? He said, because the moment you give advice, it's never about the other person. It's about hearing yourself sound good for giving advice. Wow. 
<laughs> so so here here are some things that you can say to youth that I have seen work, but you got to follow the instructions very carefully. One thing you can say is help me understand. But here's the thing, when you say it, you got to shut up and let it be really awkward. Or you can say, how can I support you? Shut up and let it be awkward. <laughs> There's a reason I say that so harshly. We don't like awkward conversations. No. That's another part of the problem. But for a mental health conversation to be effective, it has to be as awkward as it can be. You got to start chasing awkward. And when you allow there to be awkward silence, you give youth space to talk. Think about what I said to you before. Mental health challenges are confusing, complex, and frustrating. So if you go, what's wrong? And the kid goes, I don't know. And you just start talking about something else. You're not even giving room to have the opportunity to explore. But when you start giving people that space, youth will start to trust you. Even if they don't know what to say, they'll start to trust you. And over time, start to reveal things. The big thing is to get a young person talking. Don't, 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 don't sit there and tell them, just get them talking. I was working with a young person, this girl at the school. I did a speech, big gym, miss doing those big school assemblies. And she's like, Mike, can I talk to you after? And I could tell, I could tell Michael that she was going through some stuff. So I gave the, the guidance counselor the, the wink of like, okay, watch it over here. If I give you a signal, this means something serious. This young woman comes over to me and, and again, gym full of people, a lot of people want to talk to me. I was just present with her, looking in her eyes and just listening to her. And she's telling me about being anorexic and how she's been depressed. And, and I just listened. I said, thank you. I, I said, help me understand this a little bit more. And she spoke. Five minutes later, she looked at me and smiled and said, thank you. I said, what did I do? She said, well, you listened to me. And because of that, I'm going to actually eat something today for the first time in three weeks. Mike, what gets in the way of better mental health for our youth and, and then for our communities overall? What I see getting in the way is also the solution, is adults doing a lot of talking, a lot of messaging, a lot of campaigns, but not a lot of modeling. So when I work in schools, sometimes you know, teachers ask me, principals ask me the same question, what can we do? Yeah. I say, maybe you can tell your own youth that you go to therapy too. Wow. <laughs> oh, I need to do that? Yeah. Youth are real. They know what's going on. They know if you're being real or not. So it's important to say when you're struggling, you're not less of a person. If you're a parent, you're going through a rough time and you tell your kid, you're not going to be less of a parent for that. You're actually going to be a human. You're going to be more influential with your kid. You're actually going to connect with your kid on a deeper level, but you have to be willing to do that. And that's what I believe is getting in the way for a lot of our youth. If they start to see that, they're going to respond. I totally agree. Mike, do you have any final thoughts you think our listeners ought to know? Yes, I want to give one final thought, particularly to youth right now, and actually everybody. One of the things that we're hearing about in the mental health conversation more and more is self-care. I need mm. to take better care of myself. In fact, you go on Instagram right now, there's hashtags everywhere. Every other thing you see is about self-care. And a lot of people don't actually don't really know what it means. They think, oh, I need to go to the spa. I need to go to the salon. <laughs> Self-care 
is what you do to take care of your health when you're not in the presence of a medical professional. But there's a difference between self-care and escape activities. Escape activities include things like video games and movies and stuff like that. And we all do them, that's fine. But what they do is they take you away from your thoughts and feelings. You get to go numb. But when you do self-care activities, exercise, journaling, talking to a really good friend that makes you feel good, you've got to get in touch with those thoughts and feelings. The more you spend time on self-care activities, the mentally healthier you are going to be. And these things are free to everyone, but you just have to be willing to start doing it. Mike, what a great conversation. Such a great way to close this conversation. Of course, I could talk to you all day long, uh, but I really, really thank you for all that you're doing, sharing your insights with us and for the work that you're doing to improve the lives of Black families and to support uh, our community's mental health and mental wellness. So I really, really, really appreciate you and thank you for the great work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. I'm Michael Lindsay at the NYU McSilver Institute. Thank you for listening. I'm Dave Brown with the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. On behalf of the Central East MHTTC, I would like to thank Dr. Michael Lindsay, Executive Director of the McSilver Institute and our guest speaker. I would also like to thank a production team from Advocates for Human Potential. You've been listening to Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends. Many thanks to our guest, as well as the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the producers and other staff members who have had a part in producing this show. The production team includes Oscar Morgan, Michael Thompson, Tamara Moreland, David Brown, Joe Manny, Zach Stewart, Cheryl Huggins-Solomon, Miles Martin, and Crystal Francis. Learn more about the Central East MHTTC Network at mhttcnetwork.org. Learn more about the NYU McSilver Institute and our work relating to Black youth suicide at mcsilver.nyu.edu. Thank you for listening. <laughs>